Hello and welcome to the show. Our guest on this episode is one of America's most celebrated writers and now a returning guest at How To Academy. Anne Patchett is the author of seven novels and three works of non-fiction. Her most recent novel, The Dutch House, was a New York Times and Sunday Times bestseller and longlisted for the 2020 Women's Prize. She joined Hannah McInnes to explore her new collection of essays, These Precious Days. So we've all, I can speak for everybody by saying had enough of COVID, (laughs) but um, (laughs) if we're looking for upsides or silver linings, can we count this book among them? Would this exist without the pandemic? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I was just getting ready to start a new novel when the pandemic hit, and then I had no interest in writing fiction. It suddenly seemed kind of frivolous and uh, too long, because when you start thinking about your own death all the time, you think, well, I wouldn't want to really embark on a big project, but maybe just something small. Like for a a knitting analogy, you wouldn't want to start on a giant fisherman's sweater with lots of cables. Maybe you would just knit a little hat. So the essays were like one hat a week. And it was just a project for myself to have something to do while I was stuck in the house. And I didn't even set out to write a book. I was just thinking, oh, well, that's interesting. That's interesting. I would do something for a while and then write about it for a while. And the next thing you knew, I had a book of essays. So when you say death has no interest in essays, perhaps you could explain uh, what you mean exactly by death has no interest in essays and why you chose to write essays in the compilation. Um, Yes. So I have found in my life, uh, the only time that I ever really worry about dying is when I'm writing a novel. No one reads my novels until I've finished writing them. I don't sell them before I'm finished. And I walk around with this entire plot in my head. I don't take notes. I don't do an outline. Everything is in my head. And then as I'm writing it, you know, the rest of the book that's not on paper is in my head. And suddenly I I feel very worried that I'm going to stuff off a curb and be hit by a car. And that seems so tragic because if I was killed while I was writing a novel, then, of course, everyone in the novel would die with me, which, you know, isn't a great loss to literature, but you feel very responsible for all of these souls. Whereas when you're writing an essay, the essays are true. Now, of course, they're true from my perspective, but everything that happens in this book of essays, someone else was there to witness it. So if something happened and I was hit by a car or died of COVID or whatever, while I was working on the book of essays, someone else could finish whatever essay I was in the middle of. Does that make sense? I mean, it seems morbid, but yeah. <laughs> well, I think as you said before we, we went live, this book is a sort of amusing way of looking at death, or you phrased it far better than I just did. It's a joyful, upbeat book about death. That's true. And as people will hear you talking, I'm sure they'll understand in in how many ways that that is the case. In your, I think it's the first essay in in this book, I should say, you talk about your three fathers. You describe your biological father not quite understanding that writing could be a a career and a job and, and a life. And you say 
However, I was a writer and nothing else. And to miss seeing me as such was to miss seeing me altogether. I wrote and read and read and wrote. I stacked every egg I was ever given into a single basket. I can see how that would be unnerving as a parent. So that, that is the case then from your very, as far as you back as you could remember, you just wanted to be a writer. Yes, I had no plan B. And in fact, one of the real sadnesses in my life was that when I was in high school, I never took typing. I still don't know how to type. I type very quickly, but I type incorrectly and I have to look at my hands while I type because I so believed that if I ever took typing, that I would wind up being a secretary. It would give me a, a fallback plan. So if I knew how to type, I would be someone's assistant and I never learned. In retrospect, what I should have done was learned how to type and never learned how to cook. Because knowing how to cook, I think, is what really dooms a person in life for secondary work. But yeah, no, the writing writing was it. That's That's all I've ever wanted to do. And I have to say, in my father's defense, it's not that he didn't believe in me. He really did. It was that my father grew up he was a police officer. He came from a, a large immigrant family. His, his family actually came over from England during the Depression to look for jobs in Hollywood, which is sort of hysterical when you think about it. And he, he didn't want that for me. He wanted stability. And I have to say, I really understand that now. If a young person came to me and said, oh, I'm going to be a writer and nothing else. I'm not going to have a plan B. I'm just going to be a writer or a movie star or a basketball player. I would really worry about that kid. I, I think it's good to have a backup plan. And you also say, in a way, this idea that he sort of, I mean, you say this sort of uh, flippantly, but the fact that he believed in your failure more than your success kept you alert um, yes, it made you fierce, you say, and taught you at a very early age to give up on the idea of approval. I wish I could bottle that freedom now and give it to every young writer I meet with an extra bottle for the women. And I'm sure many people like me think, yes, you know, I'll have a bottle of that. In fact, you, you talk a lot of times it comes up in the essays, this idea that you have become very tough. You say again, graduate school made you tough. It's almost impossible to hurt your feelings. And that served you well through eviscerating reviews and all manner of internet weirdness. And you also say that you were just born with this compass that you know you, you, you have learned not to care about other people's opinions. And it's something I would love you to sort of tell us your advice on and, and how you think you can bottle that up or give it to us. I wish I could. I really wish I could. I don't, I think that it is something that people are just born with for whatever reason, I have never really much cared what people thought of me. Uh, even when I, was, when I was young, I think of myself as a pretty unoffensive person. I was quiet. Uh, there was nothing particularly striking about me. I just sort of went under the radar for most of my life. I don't bother anyone. And so if someone doesn't like me or they don't like what I'm doing, it doesn't make any difference because I'm really not doing anything aggressive or aggressively offensive. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm writing stories with my life. I'm not taking up a lot of space. I don't ask for anything. 
And, and if you don't like the work I'm doing, that's fine. I don't have to write the stories for everyone in the world. That's the other thing that I always think of. You know, people will say to me, oh, your characters are too nice and you should write things that are more violent and more true to life. And, and I think, well, you know, it's fine to have somebody write about nice people. Everybody shouldn't be writing about nice people, but, you know, it's okay if I do it. I'm, I'm just sort of one chip in the mosaic. It's so interesting that nobody ever says to someone who's writing about serial killers, well, do you know any serial killers? Right. Like who knows a serial killer? So I don't I I actually know a lot of nice people. I'm again, I'm pretty nice. People respond to me in kind. It's a pleasant life. Doesn't seem like I'm I'm taking up anybody else's reading time in which they could be reading about serial killers. You just want to be one of the options on the menu. That's it. This, this, these essays are about fathers, friendships, and you talk a lot about, you know, turning things into stories. One of the friendships we'll come to later, you know, from the start, this is going to be a story. So as you go through your life, are you always thinking in in that sense of, of stories and what makes a good story? And does that make you live life differently? It's like this. And I think that the best example, there's a long essay in the book called How to Practice, um, and my childhood best friend, Tavia, who I write a lot about in this book, Tavia's father died. I'd been very close to Tavia's father since I was six years old. I had spent such a huge amount of my life in her apartment. And um, when he died, she and I were cleaning it out and neither one of us have children and talking about the fact that we really had to clean out our own stuff because who was going to have to deal with what we left behind when we died. Again, it's the pandemic. We're all thinking about dying. And I went home and I cleaned my house. So through all of this, I'm not thinking, oh, I'm going to write an essay. And as I go home and I'm cleaning out every single thing in my house, my goal was to put my hand on every single thing that I owned and make a conscious decision. So I find all of this insane glassware that I accumulated when I was in high school that I have never once used. And it was incredibly beautiful, but I've never, ever used it. So I should get rid of it, let it go off into the world and have its own life, which is another weird thing that my brain does. I'm very, I have a tendency to anthropomorphize, like I'm not showing my stemware a good time, ergo, it should go off and be with someone else. And, and I'm thinking what a weird kid I was to have wanted champagne glasses, but it's fine. I'm not thinking, uh, you know, in all of this, I'm not thinking, oh, this is going to be an essay. My friend's father dies. I clean out my house. I discover all of these strange things about myself. I'm still not thinking about it in terms of an essay until the very end when my sister comes over with her friend, Megan, and Megan's daughter, Charlotte, who I, you know, I've known them forever. And then Charlotte goes into my office. She sees my typewriter. She starts to scream because she's always wanted a typewriter. She's nine. I don't know. She's something like nine. And I realize at that point that I have these sort of sacred typewriters that I own and that I could give Megan one of my typewriters for Charlotte. And at that moment, I'm like, okay, now that's an essay, right? So it wasn't until the end which is all by way of saying all these things happen in your life every day. And you're not thinking, oh, am I going to, 
am I going to write about this? Yes or no? And then one thing happens that becomes incredibly clarifying. And suddenly it's like dominoes falling over. You just think tick, 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 tick. Oh yeah. Oh, that makes a story. And it all comes together. And what was really odd about that is that when that happened and I decided to give Charlotte my typewriter, which I wound up giving her my husband's typewriter. Um, I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, I, at that point, our house is three stories. So I had cleaned the main floor and I'd cleaned upstairs where the bedrooms are and the closets, but I hadn't cleaned the basement. And once I gave that typewriter to Charlotte, I stopped. I stopped cleaning because then I was like, oh, now I want to write. Now I want to write this essay. And once I had stopped the momentum of this bizarre clean out project, then I no longer wanted to go back. Then I thought, I don't want to clean out my basement. What have I been doing? It was like I had been awakened from some insane dream where for two months I was just going through every drawer and closet like a crazy person. Then, then the momentum of insanity was broken, but I hadn't done the basement. So it took me like six months then to go back, like I had written the piece and published it before I went back and thought, okay, all right, go down into the basement, finish this, finish what you started. And I did. <laughs> I mean, there are so many, there's so many things to bring out from all these different essays. If we go back just to a little, to that idea of what shaped you as a writer, I feel like I have to mention um, a, a sort of a love we share in the form of Snoopy. Um, you say, I learned how to yeah. shape myself into who I was going to be with the guidance of a dog in the funny papers. And when people ask you about your influences, beware everybody who wants to ask that in the Q&A <laughs> Because really, she says it was just the one. Snoopy was your aspiration. Uh, how, how is that so? It was such an interesting thing. So I, I've always loved Peanuts, but specifically Snoopy. I'm a big dog person, and he was the ultimate dog, the cool dog. I was kind of a loser kid. I was, I was more like Charlie Brown, but Charlie Brown is redeemed by this incredibly cool dog. When I was a kid, that, that was just my dream. Also, I was a very slow reader when I was young, and my grandmother would buy me the Peanuts books, the cheap little mass market chunky paperbacks, which I adored. So I also sort of learned how to read with Snoopy. But a guy that I know was editing an anthology of essays, had all of these very successful writers and cartoonists writing about what different Peanuts characters had meant to them. And he asked me if I would write an essay for the book. And I said, no, you know, I'd only want to write an essay if, if I could write about Snoopy and you're not going to give me Snoopy. And he said, oh, yeah, I'll give you Snoopy. And I was like, Really? Really? I mean, it was it was like the dream date. I really, truly felt like I was going on a date with Snoopy. And so I got all of these massive Peanuts anthologies and I started reading the old strips. And as I was reading them, I thought, well, small wonder I love that dog. He taught me every single thing I knew about writing. I never made such a clear association until I was doing the research to write the piece that Snoopy was a novelist, that Snoopy got rejected, that Snoopy tried to find an agent, that Snoopy tried to find a publisher, that he would send his stories out to magazines and they would come back with form rejections. It was my whole life. 
And, and then he just keeps going and going. He's like a steamroller. Nothing destroys that dog. Nothing stops him. And that really is how I shaped myself. And I never understood it. And I never would have understood it without the assignment. So it was, it was just fantastic. It was such a great learning lesson. And I mean, in a way, it's, it's hard with these, but the things I want to ask you about all the different essays. And sometimes I'm thinking, now, I wonder if I would tenuously link Snoopy to this next question, but I'm not even <laughs> going to try and do that. No, just jump around. All bets are off. I'm going to jump around to, to, this, to this other point that comes through so much. The book is really, okay, here's your link. I think the book is a love letter to so many different things, to Snoopy um, and, of course, to, to sort of female friendship, which we will come back to. And, you know, you mentioned Tavia and there's just wonderful kind of odes to your lifelong friends and your new friends. And, of course, there's a lot, a great deal of love for, for your husband. But it, it strikes me that this idea of death and a fear of death is just completely inextricably linked with with obviously love because the fear of of death is all about really the fear of losing someone and you write in your flight plan you worried all the time about Carl when he goes off to fly but when you were with him no worries at all when you're in the plane I read I look out of the window I sleep untroubled sleep so I wonder if you know you feel that in writing about death and writing about love sort of turned out to be the same thing You're so right. That's very astute because it is all completely intertwined. Um, About two weeks ago, and this also speaks to a question you just asked about, you know, when things happen, do you want to turn them into stories? But about two weeks ago, before the book came out, Carl was flying me around to some stores in Mississippi where I always go before the books come out and sign. They're old friends. I know all these people. And we go to three or four different stores and I sign a ton of books. So we were going into um, Jackson, Mississippi. We'd already been to another store. And suddenly there was a terrible fog. Carl is a great pilot. He has his instrument rating. If you don't have your instrument rating, you're not allowed to fly in bad weather. But he has his, so he can fly in horrible weather He can fly at night. He can fly in the fog. It's sort of a good news, bad news thing. (laughs) Like in a way, I liked it better when he wasn't allowed to do that. But the fog just came up out of nowhere and it was pea soup. And then suddenly we're, we're coming down through the fog to land and the plane itself has a voice. And the plane starts saying, caution, terrain, pull up, pull up, caution, terrain. Not, it's not coming through the headphone. It's coming through the plane. And we come out of the fog and I'm like, Jesus, those are trees. And they are so close. Like we're going right into the tops of the trees. They're like, I don't know, they're 200 feet below us, which when you're in a plane is super, super close. And, you know, there the plane goes up and I'm thinking, okay, well, I've never heard that caution terrain, pull up, pull up. I've never heard the plane speak to us in this way. And we circle around a couple of times and then we land and I take the headphones off and I was like, okay, caution terrain, pull up, pull up. That doesn't, that doesn't just seem so great. And he was like, oh, it was fine. We had 200 feet. We were fine. And I was like, 200 feet's not a lot. And I could actually make out individual leaves on the tops of those trees. Carl says, well, that's only a problem when there's a 
this is like certainly a problem where there's a mountain, right? So you're coming down and then you have to pull up really fast. But if there's a mountain right in front of you, you fly into it. He said, but because it's all flat, it's really not a problem. And he said, actually, this was great because normally nothing challenging happens, but this was challenging. So it was really exciting and interesting. It's so much better than just kind of a normal dull flight. And in my mind, I'm thinking two things. I'm thinking, okay, well, I've written this essay in which I say, it's okay if we die together. So, all right, all right. It would be, it it is what it is if we die together. But wouldn't it be an interesting short story, not an essay, but but fiction, if that happened and then the couple lands and the wife says, I'm not getting back in the plane with you, right? Like it's over, that that would be the end of their marriage. She would refuse to get back in the plane. She would be stuck in this tiny town in Mississippi and the husband would go off with that. And that's my mind is like spinning out this whole story. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm so sorry. I've already written the essay about flying because- caution, terrain, pull up, pull up is so great. Like it's so fantastic. As long as you're not dead, if you're dead, then it's, I want to move the sun a little bit. Um, then it's really terrible, but yeah, that was a long answer. To this story. <laughs> no, I, I think that you can certainly write, rewrite or write another essay with the caution terrain. You're talking to someone who's, who finds that story probably almost impossible to listen to. It's my worst nightmare. The caution terrain, um, not a good plan. <laughs> Not a good flyer at all. But um, talking of, of of love, which we you know, sort of mentioned this like this sort of idea of love. One of the, the the next chapter after the flight plan is one which begins the story of a man who you call Q in a book event. I hope not like this one, where he tells you that you could not be a writer without having children, and that if you don't have children, you don't know love. And then later, you give an example of a story of a, of a presenter, I think it's a, a television interview you're doing, who said, you know, asks you again and again about uh, not having children. And you wonder yeah. quite understandably whether she would interrogate Jonathan Franzen in that way or, or a man. But you do talk in this essay very, very openly and honestly about why you haven't had children, why you didn't want children. And I wonder why you decided to, to write that and to open up about that and, and write those bullet points almost. Yes. Oh, um, I'm so glad you asked because this is really, a, it's a very, very interesting answer. For as long as I have been a successful writer, people have been asking me to write about not having children. And I've always said, it's just not interesting. I mean, some people do, some people don't. I don't have children, who cares? Um, when I put together a book of essays, I have this system, which I call the weak sister, and I will give the whole book to a friend and I'll say, tell me what the weak sister is. Tell me what the worst essay is, which one, what should I pull out? And a friend will say, okay, well, you know, I love the book. It's just great, but I do think that this one's weak and I'll take it out and I'll write another essay. Then I send the book to another friend. What's the weak sister? So I do this several times and that's how I make the book. When I'm all finished, I sent it to my editor, who I adore. And um, I said, all right, you know, here it is. Let me know if there's anything that should come out. And I had a very long profile in the book about Reese Witherspoon. Uh, I had written a, a profile of her. And I thought it was so interesting because she's such a smart person and such a great feminist. And she's done all of these wonderful things for the industry. 
And my editor said, you know, it's really good, but it's still a celebrity profile and it just doesn't fit. And uh, it was super long. And I thought, oh my God, now the book is like ready to go to press, but it has this big hole in it. So I thought, okay, what if I, what could I write about on a dime that I've never written about before? All right, I'll write about not having children. Oh my God. I sat down to write that essay and it was like I had malaria. You know, it was like I had no memory of writing it. I wrote it as fast as I could type because I kept thinking of another thing, another thing, another crazy thing. Like the editor who sent me a letter once and said, uh, you do so much good in publishing that you should be forcibly impregnated. <laughs> so there would be more of you. The things that people say are just so unbelievably outrageous. So I really wrote that essay so I could replace the missing Reese Witherspoon essay. Um, and, and I'm so glad that I wrote it because I really do think that um, we don't ever talk about that. You know, it's, people need some sort of a role model to say, oh, look, she's had a very nice life. And this is one of the options. One of the things that happened with that essay that made me so happy, a friend of mine gave it to his sister well before the book came out. I sent it to, to someone that I know. And he said, my sister has six children. She went to Princeton. She's so smart. She's smarter than anyone I know. And she got out of school and she had six children, just one, two, three, four, five, six. And she said, he said, the the grief that people give her. She walks into the supermarket and people walk up to her and say, how dare you have so many children? You're killing the planet. This is so selfish of you. So I started this conversation with my friend's sister who I had never met. And it was just incredible how we had the exact same experiences. Not having children is not okay. Having too many children is not okay. Having an abortion is not okay. Taking birth control is not okay. You know, you're, you're supposed to do exactly what someone else decides is fitting, which is what, like 2.3 children. Um, and then everyone will leave you alone. The choice, we think about choice in terms of abortion, but choice is choice. Choice means I actually don't want to have children and I never did. And I wasn't interested. Choice means Alice wanted to have six children and she doesn't really care what you think about it. And I love kind of expanding that conversation to include other options. Hello, it's Vass here. One of our all-time favorite guests at How To Academy is back. Yuval Noah Harari's next book tells the story of how information networks have made and unmade our world. Nexus, a brief history of information networks from the Stone Age to AI, is out in September and available to pre-order now. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments 
Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I, I, I found that you articulated it so well when you wrote, people want you to want what they want. If you want the same things they want, their want is validated. Yes, yes. And, um, and I say in the essay, for example, I am a vegetarian and I don't drink. Those two things freak people out. Those three things, not having children, being a vegetarian, and not consuming alcohol drives other people witless. If I am at a party and someone says, can I get you a drink? And I'll say, yeah, I, you know, I'll have a club soda. No, no, no. Let me get you a gin and tonic. No, thank you. Really, I want to get you a gin and tonic. I don't drink. Well, then you'll have champagne for the toast. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I'm not saying that you shouldn't drink, but that is really how people take it. You know, it's, it's like if, you're, if you don't have children, and I always buy such nice presents for other people's children and look at the pictures and love them, but it's still somehow offensive if I don't have children. I think uh, many people would relate to the idea. You say, I did not have the energy for children and for writing. Yes. And you often say, we, we, you know, in the book that we think as a society, we've progressed. We think we're do, you know, getting everything right. And we want, I wonder how history will, will judge us. And I feel like we still very much must be in a place where a lot of people feel they don't have the energy to be very successful at both things or even successful at both things. Yes, no, it, it's it's absolutely true. I uh, I don't believe that we will have another life, uh, but but if I did, I would think, well, okay, in the next life, I'll have I'll have a bunch of children. In this life, I decided to write. Uh, I really barely have the energy to do what I do. Uh, I can't even imagine doing all of this and having children. And certainly some people do. Some people are, are wonderfully successful. I think, you know, Carol Shields had like four kids and she wrote all the, or maybe even five. She wrote all those brilliant books. I mean, it is absolutely possible, but I think to know what is possible for oneself and to be honest about it. And I have so many friends who had children and had jobs and they just wind up feeling like they're doing a really bad job at both things all the time. They wind up feeling like they're failing at their job and they're failing their children. I do not feel that way. I just feel like I'm doing a really good job at my job and I didn't have children. And that is not anything that I recommend, but it's, I'm, I'm super happy. It's worked out very nicely. There should be someone who should be the face of, of happy, upbeat childlessness. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, amen to that. And hopefully there should be many, <laughs> many of those faces. And, and you, you say you're um, doing your job, and, and I'm sure lots of people know this, but I think you're, you, you say in the book that your truest destiny career-wise was a thing you never saw coming. And actually that you believe you've done more on behalf of culture by opening your bookstore than you have by writing novels. I said this was a love story to so many things. It is certainly a love story to reading books and bookstores. You know, I, I feel like this question, I'm sure we're preaching to many converted in given this scenario, but you know, why would you say that, that 
the bookstore that bookstores are worth sort of fighting for with every breath, and you know, particularly the independent. Oh, it's just so true. Uh, the bookstore is such a joy, and I never meant to open a bookstore. It just really, um, it was an accident, and it happened ten years ago. Creating jobs uh, has been the most amazing thing. If you want to be a novelist, you never ever think that you are going to be able to give someone a job, but we have 32 people on staff at the bookstore, and I always refer to them as the island of lost toys. <laughs> they're, they're so smart, and, and some mornings I wake up and I look at them and I think, oh, you should be the president of Google. And other mornings I look at them and I think, seriously, if we were not employing you, where would you go? Because... Because we're we're kind of a scruffy bunch, you know, everybody's in, in flip-flops and they just want to sit around and talk about books all day and read all day. But we're giving people a place to come in their community. You can just you can't go to a dress shop and just sit down and hang out. But if you have no place to go, you can go to your bookshop and sit down and, and read a book. We're not asking you to buy anything. You can meet other people who want to read. You can meet authors. You can talk about books. It's just a very safe, warm place in which you can be smart and be interested and have an exchange of ideas. It's a really, really wonderful thing. And as far as what it means to other writers, you know, if you order your book online, if you know what you want, you want the new Ann Patchett book. So you're going to go on Amazon, you're going to order it. That's fine if you're Ann Patchett. But if you're somebody who's a first time novelist, you need to go into a bookshop where somebody can actually see your book. And one of the booksellers can say, oh my gosh, I just read this book and I love it. And you should buy it. I do all of these book videos now. That's something that we started doing during the pandemic, which I've never done before. I'm not on any kind of social media, but the bookstore is. So when nobody was coming into the bookshop, I would you know, hold a book up. I would put on a party dress and a lot of lipstick and hold my dog in one arm and a book in the other and say, this is the book you should read. And then people would buy it. Is there anything in the world more satisfying or exciting than that? I don't know. Maybe having a baby, but I don't know. <laughs> Um, yes, you're not on social media, and I don't think you even use a phone, do you? Or have you? No, I, I don't use the cell phone. I mean, I use the phone that's plugged into the wall in my house, but I don't use a cell phone. Which is why I'm actually a good point um, to just say at this quick juncture, because there's a lot more I want to talk about. Talking about using a phone in your house, that comes into the book because you answer it all day on one day of the year, your birthday, which is in fact today. So we are actually celebrating happy birthday to you. Thank you. I keep forgetting because I'm on book tour and I'm so busy. But yes, it was it was a year ago today that I was shampooing my dog and the phone rang and I answered it. And it was this kid who had found a bunch of my high school poetry in his mother's nightstand that she had bought at an auction house. And somehow my writing had fallen into the nightstand when I was 16 years old. And then it had gotten sold and sold and sold. And he had found it and found me. But yeah, I had forgotten that happened on my birthday. So that was a year ago. Well, very happy birthday. Um, Thank you. It's it's doubling and tripling the honor for us to have you with us on this day. I know, wary that I need to um, 
sort of relinquish and, and wrap up my own questions uh, reluctantly, but I haven't asked you about the title, the title chapter. Really, this fe- feeds into to the very beautiful picture of um, Sparky on the front. And you say that generally when you're writing, you want to know how it ends, but perhaps you could tell us about this essay, an incredibly moving essay, which is called the same as the title, These Precious Days. And I think perhaps is the essay around which the whole book is is sort of based in a way. Sure, sure. It's an incredibly long essay about my friendship with Suki Raphael. And I had met Suki three years ago um, when I was interviewing Tom Hanks in a theater in DC and she was Tom's assistant. And I met her in the dark backstage before we were going on. And I, I just was so interested in her. There was just something about her. She was this very vibrant, tiny, quiet, beautiful, interesting person. And what was so compelling was that I thought, okay, I'm meeting Tom Hanks, but I keep, I keep wanting to talk to his assistant instead of to him. And I say in the book, I wonder how famous a person would have to be to have someone like that as an assistant. And Suki and I kept in touch very lightly on email, maybe exchanging a note every month or so. And uh, she had cancer. She got pancreatic cancer after I met her. She had a Whipple procedure. She had chemo and radiation. She was cancer-free. Then the cancer came back and she was trying to get into a clinical trial really fast. And getting into a clinical trial means finding a trial that matches your particular genetic code of cancer and also one that has space for you. And my husband, who's a doctor, found a trial at the hospital where he works here Suki came out to start the trial here. She was going to be here for 10 days, two weeks, and then go back to Los Angeles because the hospital out there was then going to start the trial. And in that period of 10 days, uh, the pandemic hit and she got stuck here because the hospital in LA canceled the trial. The flights were canceled. She had a very low white count and couldn't really have flown home anyway. Carl was doing telemedicine in the dining room instead of going to work. I was upstairs writing. She was downstairs painting because all her life she had just wanted to have time for painting. And she had worked so hard and been so busy. And she just decided she wasn't going to waste a second. And we had this amazing time where three strangers stuck in a house. I keep saying it's like when you go off to school and you meet your roommate And you think, I'm going to live with a total stranger in this tiny little room with twin beds. And then you find out that you really, really adore that person. And you get to have all this time together. We ate three meals a day together. We walked the dog together. We did our yoga together. We did everything together. Um, We talked about art all day. And um, it it was a phenomenal experience for all three of us. You don't get that chance very often as adults to just spend that huge amount of time with someone and get to know them. And I mean, and that's um, as well as Suki, as I mentioned before, we were um, aware and sort of actively in writing these essays, wanting to get the message about the, the great strength of female friendship at all stages of life across just the very, 
important and powerful thing that is perhaps not written about enough? You know, that that's just, yeah, I wasn't trying to get that across, but I just have a ton of friends. Um, and, and, and I really love them. I had written a book in, I can't remember when I wrote this book, maybe 2003 called Truth and Beauty, which was a nonfiction book about my friendship with the writer Lucy Greeley. And she died when we were both 39. And I wrote about our friendship. And whenever I go out, people always say to me, what would have happened if you had written that book when she was still alive? You know, would she have liked it? What, what would that have been like for her? Such a good question. And so I had written a piece about my childhood best friend, Tavia, the aforementioned Tavia, whose father had died. And I thought, I want to write a celebrity profile about my childhood best friend. Okay, so there's Reese Witherspoon, there's Tavia, uh, equally interesting, compelling women. And it made her so happy. Yeah. It made her so unbelievably happy to have somebody writing a story about her. So when Suki was here and all of these interesting things were going on, I mean, it was the most incredible time in the world and inside our house. And I wanted to write about it. And I said to her, because she was very, very shy and very private. And I said, listen, I am going to do this, but it's just going to be for us. And then you get to make that decision about what you want to happen. I've got to write because it's the only way I can make sense of all of the things that are going on. And I want to make a record of this time because it's so amazing, but it doesn't mean that I ever have to publish it. I'm certainly at a point in my career where I don't feel like I have to publish everything I write. I can write something just because I want to write it for myself, but it was that same thing as writing about Tavia. It was, it was somehow writing something in between Lucy and Tavia because I knew that Suki was going to die, but I wanted to write about her life and make a portrait of her to show her, to, to hold it up and say, this is how I see you. This is who you are to me. And when her family read it and her friends read it, and they all said, no, this is how we see you too. This is who you are to us. Because she thought that I was being very flattering and nice. And then when everybody said, no, 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 this is who you are. This is how we see you. And it was so important for her and so empowering. And then to have her painting on the front of the book and and she did the layout and she made all of the choices on the US cover, the colors. And it was such a beautiful thing for her to be involved in every stage of putting the book together. It was wonderful. It's so true. You, you talk about that it's so often. You either have to be a, a huge celebrity or it's an, an obituary that one never sees to sort of praise. Right. So to do that, um, for your friends it, uh, to be able to read when they're alive is a very special thing. As I said, reluctantly, I'm going to have to, um, well, shut up, I suppose, and um, get the audience um, questions. Um, so the first one uh, to ask you is from Carmen, who asks what you're reading at the moment, um, your favourite writer and poet. This is three wrapped into one, so you can rattle through these. And advice for her new job as school librarian. What grade school librarian? School librarian, little kids? School librarian, big kids? Oh, I'll have to wait for the response. We'll wait and see if it comes back. Okay, so what I'm reading, because I own a bookstore, my problem in life, the way in which having a bookstore has destroyed my life, 
<laughs> is that I only read books that have not yet been published. I read advanced readers. Is this a problem for you as well? <laughs> do you do you read? I, I'm sure that, that you must, Hannah, be in the same position of always having to read books that haven't come out yet. So whenever people say, what are you reading? I'm like, oh, gosh, it's not anything that you could possibly read. For example, I just finished reading the Jennifer Egan book, which comes out in April called The Candy House, which is the most astonishing novel. And hey, you've heard it here first. I also have started a project where I am reading one John Updike story a day because I read so much that's bad. That's the other thing. When you read things that haven't come out yet, so often I get a third of the way into a book or half or sometimes three pages and I realize I don't like it. Um, So just reading something every single day that I know that I really like has been very helpful. Uh, I am right in the middle of a Kate Bowler book and Kate Bowler is a woman who teaches divinity at Duke University. We have in the some States. Yeah. I Did you? About a month ago, I interviewed her about no cure for being human. Yeah. Just oh, right. that's what I'm reading. I'm right in the middle of it. Um, so I'm going to be on her podcast in a couple of days. So I'm, I'm trying to be good and, and read her books. And it's the second one. And I'm, and she's just fascinating. So compelling. And, and actually, it's very interesting to me that she wants to interview me about this book. Because it's a perfect yep. fit. I mean, the whole thing about realizing that you're going to die and how that makes you enjoy your life and also often to become very productive. Um, poetry. I love Jane Kenyon. I just went back recently and reread Sylvia Plath, who I had adored when I was in high school and college. And I, in the back of my mind, I always thought of her as a poet for sad young girls, but in fact, brilliant, 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 which then of course led me to read a bunch of Ted Hughes. And that was wonderful. And two poets that I love, Billy Collins and Marie Howe, people that I love. And do I have advice for librarians? Let the kids read whatever they want. When I was in school, oh my gosh. And I went to a Catholic girls school and I was very small I didn't grow until I went to college. It was strange. But every time I brought a book to check out, Sister Bonaventure would say, no, that's too old for you. And that actually is how I started reading poetry. That's how I started reading Eliot and Yeats and Stevens, because poetry was the one thing that she would never deny me. So yeah, let your kids read everything and let them read a lot of Kate DiCamillo, which is good for every age with, with young people. And there's, an, and there's another love story in the, in the book. I mean, she, uh, Carmen says they're big kids, 10 to 18, but perhaps the advice stays the same. Yes. Let them read whatever they want. And they can read things that are too young and things that are too old. I always say books are, every book is a gateway drug. So as long as kids have a good experience with reading, people who read bad books may spend the rest of their life reading bad books, or they may read better books. People who read no books will only read no books. So I, when, and when I say bad books, I think about books that I love, uh, like Diary of a Wimpy Kid and Captain Underpants, and those books that are, you know, full of bathroom humor and misspelling for young boys who hate to read because it makes them excited to read. 
And then perhaps they will go on to read other books. I felt that way about the Fifty Shades of Grey books too, because people who didn't read anything suddenly came to the bookstore because they wanted to read pornography. And I'm like, great. I don't care if you're reading pornography. What I care is that you're reading and that you're realizing, oh, I feel good coming into a bookstore. This is a safe, friendly, happy place. So anything, just get them to read. Somebody says The Candy House, and they are from a, from Curtis Publishing Company. I, I don't know if they were the ones who published it. Candy House is so good. Delighted you love it, Anne. Oh, I'm so, so glad. I mean, Curtis what are the chances that, <laughs> that somebody's responding to a book that is coming out in April? But it, I can't imagine that it won't win every prize. Uh, it's, it's, just, it's just brilliant. Oh, that's very exciting. That is very exciting. Get, get uh, Jennifer Egan on your show. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, they're listening. Um, uh, Esme is listening. So we're scribbling that one down. One of the things when you, when you talk about a librarian getting kids to sort of read everything that I reminds me of another hero of the book is really um, your teacher, Alan Guganis. Yeah, of course. And um your sort of desperation that, that he, that he, well, you say, you know, I wanted so much for him to love me and yeah. to, to sort of all that kind of care and attention that he gave to your essays. And, you know, I think a lot at the moment, successful people remembering how important a role teachers played in their lives. Uh, you know, I feel, feel like it's something that idea of, of wanting to impress a teacher and the importance that that can play in, in kind of driving success. I wonder if you could sort of elaborate on, on, on how important that was to you. It's so true. Um, Alan was my teacher when I was in my second year at university. And again, you know, I was just, I was so quiet. I never stood out in any crowd, but he gave me so much encouragement, but love. It was just love. And always said, you know, you're doing a good job. Think about this, work on this part. He took me seriously. He always addressed me as if I was already a writer and someone who would be successful. And I go back and I look at those stories now that he marked up and they were just, they were full of spelling mistakes and grammatical mistakes and mistakes of logic. And he never pointed any of those things out. He always looked at the bigger picture and found a way to be so encouraging. And, and he, was, he was a movie star to me. And I did want to do better in order to please him and to make him proud of me. I just love him so much. Hello, it's Vass here, recommending you a new book from our friends at Firm Press. This May, the author of The Argonauts and other genre-defying, unclassifiable modern classics, Maggie Nelson, is back with a new collection of essays. It's called Like Love. The collection celebrates art, artists and thinkers, including Prince, Bjork, Sarah Lucas and Judith Butler. Like Love is available to pre-order now in hardback, ebook, and audio. Um, the other thing that you, you kind of delve into um, little bits at sort of times in the book, uh, kind of you give us glimpses into your routine and your way of doing this, things as, an, as a writer. And I know this, you know, endlessly intrigues people to, to find out how successful writers go about it. Again, the man who we will call Q, who told you <laughs> to have children, also gives you all sorts of kind of very um, 
sort of dogmatic advice, <laughs> if that's the right. right way to describe it. Um, and, you know, you say in that moment that actually you do a lot of your writing, I don't know if this is still true, in your pajamas, without a schedule, in your dining room. Is that sure. right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, to me, that's the whole pleasure of having a job as a writer. And he was saying, no, you have to treat it as a job. You have to have an office outside your home. You have to get dressed up every morning and leave at the same time and and go and put in your hours at the office. And I thought, that's just so ridiculous. I mean, it it works for you, but don't tell me what's going to work for me. The loveliest thing about being a writer is we all get to do it in our own way. I mean, you also say that when you're putting together a novel character-wise, you leave all the doors and windows open so the characters can come in and out and just as easily leave. How, right. how, how does that work? It's sort of, you know, I, I was going to say literally. I wonder if that's even a, a, a possible. Well, it, it almost is because I... Um, I find that if I write something down, I get very attached to the idea and it's hard for me to change. But when I'm thinking about something, things feel much more flexible. For example, the novel that I'm about to write, which as soon as I finish all the publicity and everything for this book, I I have a novel I've been thinking about for three years and I know exactly what's going to happen. But there, there are two men, they were best friends in high school, growing up, they were neighbors and one becomes very famous. And the other one is always looking after the famous one, always his whole life. He's there. And then I'm always thinking, why, you know, were they lovers? Were they, why would this one be so devoted to the other year after year? The famous one has drug problems and a, and a very splashy life but the other one's always there cleaning up after him. Why, why would, would a friend really do that for your whole life? And then like three weeks ago, I thought, oh my gosh, they're brothers. They're not friends. They're not lovers. They're brothers. Because if it's your brother, then you do spend your life cleaning up after him. You do always shelter him and care for him. It took me three years to come to that. If I had written the story as them being friends, it wouldn't have worked. If I had written the story as them being lovers, it wouldn't have worked. They're brothers. So I feel good about that. It just (laughs) takes time. (laughs) Just before we let you go, I mentioned in the introduction about this uh, thing I've always wondered, you know, don't judge a book by its cover. And you brilliantly articulated this, uh, which I sort of feel I've always known to be true, which is that that doesn't actually apply to books. Right. (laughs) And, uh, you know, and, And let me tell you, owning a bookstore, oh my God, that is exactly how we judge books. And when we unbox the books on Tuesdays and go, oh, that cover is so bad. This book is never going to sell. Uh, It just drives me crazy. All right. So this is how we're going to end this. My friend Elizabeth McCracken emails me yesterday and she says, these are the covers that my publisher sent me. Oh my God, they were so terrible. And they they fit into the great problem of having a woman on the cover of a book. She said, go and look and see if you can find something better, something I can think about. So I'm looking this morning all over the bookstore, every woman on the cover of a book, her back is to the viewer. It's cut off at her neck. She has a big hat shading her face. She has dark glasses. She's looking away. There is never a direct female gaze on the cover of the book. And the reason is Publishers believe that women are so stupid 
that if they cannot imagine themselves to be the heroine of the story, they won't buy the book. So the woman has to be obscured in some way so that the stupid female reader can imagine herself as the heroine of the story. This drives me out of my mind. So when I wrote The Dutch House, I said, I want this portrait of Maeve, which is in the book, to be on the cover. And I called my friend Noah Satterstrom and I said, I said, I want a picture of a 10-year-old girl in a red coat with black hair and blue eyes who is in love with the person who is painting her. Paint me a painting in which she is staring right at the painter and therefore staring right at the reader. And I swear to you, the reason that book did so well was because of that painting, because it's the first time in I don't know how long that anybody has actually seen a female face and a direct gaze on the cover of a book. There you go. And thank you so much. It's really been a huge, huge pleasure talking to you. Um, I've, I feel we've all been very, very lucky to have this hour with you. And thank you all, as I said at the start, very much indeed for signing in. And Hannah, thank you so much for doing all this work, because as somebody who interviews people all the time, it is a ton of work. I interviewed Colson Whitehead last week. Oh, my God. Read all his books again. It's just, a you know, it's a joy but it's a load of work. And thank you all for tuning in. I really do appreciate it. This episode starred Anne Patchett and was presented by Hannah McInnes. The producer was Esme Bright and the series is made by me and Dana Outcult and edited by John Doughty. These Precious Days is out now. If you enjoyed this week's show, do have a listen to Esme's interview with Max Porter a few weeks back If he is not already on your radar as one of the UK's most remarkable young novelists, I guarantee you are going to be bowled over. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Until next time, thanks for listening.